the word if often comes at the beginning of a proposal. In our house, it might sound like this. My wife will say, Glenn, if you'll do the laundry, I'll get started on dinner. Or it might be the other way around. I might say to her on a Saturday when I have no responsibilities at the church, if you'll make a nice, big, beautiful brunch, I'll clean up all the dishes, and then we can go shopping together at Easton. Or sometimes it's a series of proposals as a way of, uh, of organizing our day. If we do this and we do that, and if we do this other thing, then we'll have time, if we get all those things done, to go enjoy dinner out together. Sometimes if is a proposal. Sometimes the word if starts off a temptation. Not in the Gospel of Mark, which we just heard from. His, his temptation story is just two lines long. But in the Gospel of Matthew, we hear a full conversation between the devil and Jesus. And, and my, by the way, in my mind, the devil is a metaphor for the presence of evil. If you believe in the literalness of the devil, that, that's fine as well. But here's this conversation where the devil and Jesus are, are in the wilderness together, and the devil begins by saying, if you are the Son of God, the temptation there is for him to be something other than who he is, really. The, the temptation that the devil gives to him is, turn these stones. I mean, if you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. It's a brilliant temptation. It makes some sense. There's hungry people. Let's feed them. But Jesus knows if he gives in in this way, he's being tempted to be something other than who he's called to be. Sometimes the word if begins a challenge. We just heard, heard it in the scripture that Tim read for us. If you would heal me, if you would heal me. The, the man with leprosy is somewhat challenging Jesus. I know that you're an amazing preacher. We know that you're a marvelous teacher. We know that you are a kind and gracious healer. And if all those things are true, then would you heal me as well? It's a bit of a, of a challenge to Jesus. By the way, I want you to know, leprosy in antiquity was kind of a catch-all phrase for any skin issue. It could be something as, as terrible as eczema or, or rough and scaly skin or boils or acne, whatever it might be. But in antiquity, if you had a skin issue, you were oftentimes pushed to the margins, excluded from the community. This man is desperate to be back with his family, with his friends, to be included again in his community. He comes to Jesus, if you could do this, if you want to heal me, implied there is, if you want to heal me, and I know you do, would you please, would you please heal me? But Jesus, as we hear in the text, is somewhat irritated by this request. Toward the end of the story, did you catch it? Jesus said to the man, go and tell no one. He's been healed, but now he tells him, go and tell no one. This is something we learn about in, in seminary called the messianic secret, that there seems to be some reluctance, especially in Mark, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry on his part to really fully be exposed for who he is. Now, yes, if you've read the Gospel of Mark, the first chapter where this came from, he's already been teaching, he's already been preaching, he's already been healing, but it's as though he wants to hold things back, not quite get out there. He's, after all, just, just a few verses before this, escaped out to the desert for some peace and quiet, and yet he's hunted down by the disciples, and then he's also hunted down by this man with leprosy. If you want to heal me, I know you can, and I know you want to. And there's that, there's that little bit of irritation with Jesus of just wanting, I just want a few moments, a few days maybe of peace and quiet before my full-on ministry begins. You know, ministers share that kind of concern with, with Jesus, 
Sometimes I'm not complaining, but sometimes it's hard to be on all the time. I'm especially not complaining after coming off of my sabbatical last summer, which was amazing and, and marvelous. But sometimes that, that work to constantly be on is not an easy thing to deal with. You know what the worst place is for ministers to deal with this issue? Do you know where that might be? Can anybody guess? An airplane. If you're on an airplane and somebody sitting next to you says, what do you do? I'm really tempted to say, I'm a brain surgeon. <laughs> Just something that no one knows anything else about. I, I've never done that yet, but I still am tempted. My, my, my friend Fred Craddock, who's sort of the, the, the patron saint of all, of all preachers, was on an airplane getting ready to take off for Atlanta. He was at the Ontario airport in Southern California where he just spent a few days as a theologian in residence at the Loma Linda Hospital and the Loma Linda Church. You might recognize those names, though. Those are Seventh-day Adventist-sponsored organizations. Fred was invited to come out and preach and give a few lectures. Well, now he's on the plane. He's flying home to Atlanta. The woman sitting next to him says, is, is Atlanta your home? He says, no, but I live close by. What about you? Is it home for you? She says, no, I'm on my way to see my grandchildren. Then she asks him, why were you out here in Southern California? He said, well, I, I'm a preacher, and I spoke at Loma Linda at the church there and also at the hospital and as their theologian in residence. And she said, Loma Linda, isn't that a Seventh-day Adventist-sponsored organization? Well, yes, it is. Are you Seventh-day Adventist, she asked. Well, no, I'm not. Well, then why would you come out if you're a seven, not a Seventh-day Adventist? Well, because they invited me. And he was kind of getting irritated. Like Jesus, he's getting a little bit irritated. I don't see why this is a problem, he, he said. And she says, oh, I know what you're doing. You're othering. Othering? What is that? Our preacher talks about it every week in church. We have to reach out to the other. We have to be kind to the other. We should make friends with the other. Those others who are different from us, who have a different ethnic background or different, different political belief or a different way of seeing the world or, or religion, whatever it might be, and in, and in making friends with those folks, will enrich our lives and theirs as well. will be a better world for it. I'm tired of it. He preaches about that stuff every week, week after week after week. If he preaches one more time in church about othering, I'm going to stand up and throw up right there in church. And then she said, after all, it's a fad. It will pass. Fred said, what, what do you mean? It's just a passing fad. Let me show you. She pulls out the Sky magazine in the pocket before them. You remember how there used to be magazines on planes? She opens it up the first page. She says, do you see this article? It's in English. Turns the page. Same article. Here it is in Spanish. Turns the page. Here it is, the same article. It's in Japanese. It's a passing fad. We've got to get this country back to where English is the only language used. Fred said, it's not a passing fad. It goes back to the beginning of Christianity. It does, she says. Yes, on the day that Jesus died, Pilate, the governor who sentenced him, put a sign on the cross that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And he said to the soldiers, write it in Hebrew, write it in Latin, write it in Greek. And she didn't say another word the rest of the flight. See, Jesus came to the other he came to, to, to witness to those, to bring those in, the ones that Robert Capon calls the last, the least, the lost, the little, and the dead, to bring those back into the full community, to understand them as children of God, no matter who they are, what affliction that might, might be covering them or isn't. And yet Jesus wants, like Fred on that plane, he just wants a little bit of time, just a chance to, to, to experience a few days. We, 
we know what that's like, don't we? I mean, sometimes you have a big project or a lot of work to do, and you think, okay, I'll get after it first thing tomorrow. I just I needed some extra time. We left our Christmas decorations up a little longer than we normally do this year. Uh, a few days after, after Christmas, Julie said to me, should we take the trees and the decorations down now? I said, ah, you know, I've had a long day. I'd really like to just read a little bit and, and relax before, before I go to bed. Okay, fine. A few days later, I said to her, should we take them all down now? She said, you know, you were having a long day. I'm having a long one today. We'll, we'll get to it. We did eventually get to it, just so you know, so we don't have a tree up on Ash Wednesday. That would be unusual. But we know that. We understand, right? Sometimes we just need some space. I thought of that Fred Craddock story, though. When I saw the footnote at Mark 141, there's a little footnote. If you have a Bible, you can see it. Even if you have a Bible app, that footnote appears on your Bible app. And at the bottom of the page, it says, where, where it says the word pity, Jesus felt pity towards the man. The footnote at the bottom of the page says, other ancient manuscripts say anger or indignation. It struck me when I was looking at that this week. Wait a second. Jesus felt anger when this man was before him? I I don't want an angry Jesus. I want a Jesus who's going to feel pity toward me. When I see Jesus in the life to come, I'm going to need pity. I suspect most of you, if not all of you, are going to need the same kind of pity towards you. I don't want an angry Jesus. What could possibly be going on here? Why, Why is Jesus angry? Well, maybe, maybe it's some of those things we've already been talking about. Maybe, maybe it's his, he just needs some time before he begins. That does catch my attention. You know, there's, there's two principles in biblical translation that apply to this today. Oftentimes, the biblical translators will go with the oldest manuscript, the oldest account, whether it's a gospel or a psalm or something else. Whatever the oldest manuscript is that's available, they'll go with the word there, or the words or phrases in that oldest one, and they'll also oftentimes go with the more difficult reading. They'll take the more difficult reading, like anger instead of pity. Jesus is angry. But the more I read that and think about that, the more I begin to resonate with Jesus. He's frustrated. He's upset. He knows he's being called. He knows he's called to witness to those on the margins, to the ones that Fred Credit called the, in that story, the, the others. He knows that's who he is. He knows he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to confront military, political, and religious power. He's going to take on those systems to bring hope and healing and new life. He might lose his life, but he knows that's where he has to go. He knows. And he just needs a moment to take a breath. Now, to be clear, there are other scholars who say that maybe what Jesus is angry about is the, the disease itself, how terrible that it is, that it's, it's used against the poor man who did nothing to, to receive that disease and how he's being pushed off to the side. Others say that Jesus is angry at the system that pushes this man to the side and refuses to bring him into the fullness of the community. Those can be true as well, but there's a third one out there that says maybe, maybe these two traditions of the Gospel of Mark, the one that says angry, the one that says pity, maybe they're a reflection of an earlier understanding that what Jesus feels in the moment is both anger and pity. Frustration and anger at, I just wanted some time away. But then he looks at the man on his knees asking for help. The anger fades, the pity takes over. Jesus knows. Jesus knows all he wants is to be with his family and his friends. 
just wants to be with the community again. And so, of course, Jesus heals him. Jesus, a moment before, may have been saying to God silently in, in prayer in his mind, God, can't you give me a couple of days? Can I have a few days before I have to start this? Isn't there something else maybe I could do? Maybe Jesus was even tempted to just be a nice preacher, healer, teacher, not take on the systems of power and abuse, not go to Jerusalem, just be a, a, a countryside wilderness preacher who blesses people and does nice things. That's valuable. But no, Jesus finally does say yes because he's moved with pity to give himself to this man and to the world. Do you know that parable that Jesus tells in another gospel of the two sons? There's one son that he says, son, I need your help out in the vineyard. Would you come out please and help me? And the son says, of course I will, father. And then the son doesn't. To another son, he says, son, I need your help. Would you come out and work with me out in the vineyard, please? And that son is irritated, angry, frustrated with his dad. You're always telling me what to do. I never have any time to myself. No. But then the son says to himself, I better go work the vineyard. The vineyard, dad needs work. The vineyard needs work. I got to go. Jesus then asks his students, which of the two sons obeyed the will of the father? What would you say? The second I wonder if Jesus creates that story out of his own life and experience. There was a moment when he wanted to say no, but he went ahead and said yes in his actions. Go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is in prayer, sweating drops of blood. There's got to be another way. There's got to be another way. And you can almost hear the sigh in the text as Jesus says, but not my will, yours. Not my way, yours. Before he's taken to the cross. Yes, Jesus comes to those on the edge, to the lost and the forgotten, to the least and the little, to those who in some ways don't seem to matter or count at all. I wonder on this day, I wonder well, we may not be marginalized as much as that leper was. We may not be pushed away as so many of people, some of the people that Jesus encountered in his life, but our scars may not show up on our skin. Maybe it's a broken heart, a wounded soul, a mind that's cloudy and not clear. I wonder if we, like that leper, have the courage on this day to kneel before Jesus to offer ourselves to say sincerely, deeply, Lord, I know you can help me. I know you want to help me. Will you? Do we have the courage to ask that simple question?